Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for another day to hear your word. Thank you for the reminder to us that you are ever speaking to us and that your spirit is with us and that you have gone through much, Lord Jesus, even in your own hometown to ensure that we have a better version of reality, a, a better narrative by which to live, a better hope, Lord, and a broader calling to all people. We pray that we would live within that calling today, that we would hear that calling again today, that you would, you would challenge and change us, Lord. We want to hear everything that you'd have to say to us by your Spirit. I pray that you would knit us together uh, under your Word and in your authority. And we pray that, um, Lord, uh, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight today, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. I know some of you are hoping that I'm going to preach on speaking in tongues, um, but I'm not today. Uh, I may touch on it a little bit, but uh, if you want to hear a little bit about that, go back three years to 2019 on the fourth Sunday of Epiphany when the scripture rolled around, and I actually preached on it back then. So if you want to go back in time, you can do that on our website on the sermon audio. Um, a close friend of mine in college uh, was the first person that I'd ever met who I would call statriotic. He was from Dunn, North Carolina, and basically he thought his home state was the equivalent of, uh, or the Mary Poppins of America. It was practically perfect in every way. I remember several speeches in the car over blaring grunge music in which Stan would recount all the aspects of North Carolina that made it superior, especially over South Carolina. And I think he just enjoyed rehearsing it all because it had uh, to have been obvious to him at the time that as kid from Florida, I didn't care enough to disagree or even to respond, but he liked to hear himself talk about his state, and I didn't mind him being wrong about it. So, as it turns out, Stan has been running an adventure company in Dubai for the last 15 years, so that's about as far away from North Carolina as you can get. <laughs> Life's funny, isn't it? Um, Jesus actually grew up much closer to Dubai uh, than to Dunn. He was from northern Israel, a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And Nazarenes were proud of their town. And they were pretty statriotic. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But in the Gospel of John, Nathaniel, who's an initially reluctant disciple of Jesus, he thought uh, that a Messiah from Nazareth of all places sounded preposterous. What good can come from Nazareth? Nazareth wasn't much in the eyes of, of other Galileans. But I'm guessing the Nazarenes didn't care. About 200 years before Jesus was born, they were a focal point in a successful and albeit short-lived Jewish revolt against Rome. I don't have time for the whole story, but during this Maccabean revolt, that's who led it, the Maccabeans, uh, Maccabees, I should say, uh, Nazareth and most other Galilean Jews, they pushed out nearly everyone else while Jewish settlers from Judea in the south moved in. Before that time, Galilee was actually a majority non-Jewish region. It was a majority Gentiles. And in the days of Isaiah the prophet, it was even called Galilee of the Gentiles. So, something, a significant shift happened during that revolt. Nazarenes in the Maccabean era, they circled their wagons and a really strident nationalism grew. But after a decade or so, the Maccabean revolt was put down by imperial Rome, and over the next two centuries, 
Gentiles started coming back. They began to repopulate and regain a majority in the region. But Nazareth kept its reputation for being largely Jewish. So much so that after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, four decades after Jesus, a group of refugee priests actually settled in Nazareth. Why? Because it was a great place to be Jewish. So here in our gospel reading today, Luke tells us Jesus is being manhandled to a cliff by his own people in Nazareth. What is going on? What had he done to deserve this in their eyes? What had he said to make them so angry? What was his intent? And what might this story actually reveal, not only about him, but about us? The situation begins in the synagogue, which is, it served as both a community and a religious center. It's where most of the worship was happening when people weren't at the temple. This was the gospel reading that we, we missed last week after shifting forward due to uh, the snowed out Sunday. So I mean, it's brief, and I want to read it to you. Again, this sets us up. Luke 4, 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of of the Lord's favor. So far, so good, right? It would seem. Isaiah 61 was very possibly their favorite verse or one of their favorite verses. It's all about Israel's favor and rescue and vindication. In these few verses, their economic, their political struggle is declared to be temporary and over. God will release and heal his people. The year of the Lord, it hearkened to the Jubilee in their history, when all debts were canceled and when every, all the land that anyone had lost was given back to them, to, to their original owners. But one thing already stands out in what Jesus has done and is, and is doing. It would have stood out to them. Maybe they didn't know what was going on just yet. Maybe they were scratching their heads, at least at this point. Jesus stopped in the middle of the last full verse and sat down. He didn't say everything that verse says. That verse continues and is supposed to end with this, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And the day of the vengeance of our God. In other words, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus sits down. Instead of saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, he interrupts it. It's not a huge deal, it would seem, right? Uh, But it gets a little stranger when Jesus sits down and all eyes are on him and they're captivated. And then he says... Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's interesting. Customarily, he would have said something like, the word of the Lord, to which they might reply, or probably, amen, so be it, let it be so. He may have ended with that, but that's not all he said. Verse 21 reads like, he must have continued to expound on it after saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing because in verse 22 they're marveling because what he's saying is so gracious. He's saying some good things here. It's encouraging. The hometown boy is singing their favorite song on the jukebox. But apparently something shifts for at least some of them. Isn't this just Joseph's boy, they say? What could he mean by all this? 
Maybe something he says right there in the, the gracious words begins to change the vibe, or maybe it's beginning to sink in, maybe where he stopped. Maybe they are scratching their heads about that stop before it gets to, where, to the really good stuff, God's vengeance. Chapter 61 goes on to proclaim that Zion, Israel, will be replanted. It will be rebuilt uh, up from the ancient ruins, from the devastation of many generations. It says foreigners will now work for us as servants. And in our fields and vineyards, we shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory shall we boast. No more shame, but a double portion, it says. And on it goes. But Jesus has stopped and said, this fulfilled in your hearing. By stopping where he did and declaring it fulfilled, Jesus inserts himself into that very particular moment in the prophecy where the day of the Lord gets filled in. It gets filled in with everything that he is going to bring. What's he doing? He's saying that he is the one upon whom the Spirit has come. The Spirit has anointed him to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. He is declaring that everything to come, everything from judgment to restoration and to rejoicing will run through him. He has inaugurated this jubilee. Now clearly they're trying to reconcile what he's saying with who they know him to be. As they let it all sink in, he's not playing the song the way they're used to hearing it. Have you ever heard a cover of a song that you just wish had never been made? A song you love and you're like, just why? Why? Right? Sorry. Here's what's really interesting. Jesus has apparently said just enough to stir up the very thing that needed stirring. He provoked in them two things that might hinder them from actually receiving everything that the day of the Lord is bringing through Him. Everything Jesus Himself is bringing. What's the first hindrance? In the words of Shakespeare, familiarity breeds contempt. We know from Matthew's Gospel that they offended. Uh, they were offended simply because they could not reconcile who they knew him to be and how he was talking. It just says they were offended at him. Who does he think he is? Jesus has seen this problem of familiarity before, and we're going to get there. He's going to get there. It's all throughout the Scriptures. Israel won't listen to their own prophets. We call what Jesus is doing here typology. I talked about it on uh, Tuesday in my small group. We're talking about making sense of Scripture. Jesus is, in his own life, he's revealing a pattern. He's becoming the prophet. It's the same stuff, different day. Jesus is the rejected prophet this time. So ironically, they're rejecting Isaiah again, and the fulfilling of this prophecy as well. To this, Jesus responds, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And that's the second hindrance. And apparently he can read their hearts and minds. What's the second hindrance? Well, he's the hometown boy, but they want him to prove it if he's got this authority. Prove it. Gracious words aren't enough for his own people. Perform some signs for us. Show us signs of this favor if it's fulfilled in our hearing. At least some of the key people present have moved from marveling at him to a deep scrutiny and doubt. Here's the thing. Jesus could have met their expectation. But would they believe? 
if he'd done all the signs, I mean, if you, if you read anything of the New Testament, of the Gospels, if, if he's d- done all these signs, would they believe? No. Jesus knows that no matter what he does or will do will not be enough for them. He already knows that no amount of miracles, no amount of profound teaching is going to move the mountain of their own preconceived and entrenched ideas. Because he knows where their hearts are. So Jesus leans in. Beginning in verse 25, he reminds them of the ministries. He reminds them of what's going on. The ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha who came at moments of Israel's great desperation and need. Even when Israel is starving and leprous, their lack of faith and willingness to listen meant that the provision and the healing God provides were instead flowing beyond Israel through the outsider the widow from Zarephath, to Naaman, this foreign leper king. In a sense, Jesus is saying, it's for the Gentiles anyway. Not just for the Gentiles, for the Jews first, as Jesus will say later. But if they won't accept him, they also won't stop him. They won't accept the message, they also won't intercept the message. Grace is coming. This blessing and favor is for everyone. Outsiders are becoming insiders too. And you know what? That's probably 100% of us. Let me just put it this way. Jesus is singing Israel's favorite prophetic song, so to speak, in the synagogue, and he has the audacity to suggest that maybe the song, after all, is better than they imagined or hoped. But it didn't fit their imagination or their hopes. And maybe other people will hear it, even if Nazareth is stopping her ears. Maybe as their prophet, Jesus is here to finally break the pattern of prophetic rejection in Israel. He's going to do it for Israel. He's going to do it kind of as Israel, as the true Jew, and to carry the message to anyone who will receive it. Maybe not Nazareth, but certainly others. This is what we know Jesus does. The hometown boy from a stridently Jewish village is fulfilling the destiny of all Israel to be the light of the world. The justice, the freedom, the rebuilding, the replanting of human flourishing will come to all as they believe in Israel's Messiah. This is what Yahweh God promised He would do through Israel, and He's doing it through Joseph's boy, who also happens to be the Son of God. In Jesus, the promise of favor belongs not just to Israel's poor, but to the world's poor who can have hope beyond their circumstances. Prisoners of every kind confined to all manner of prisons for the mind and for the body are promised freedom in Him. No one need be reduced to their circumstances or buried under them. Light is coming, and the blind from near and far will see. The year of the Lord's favor is their year, It's my year, and it's your year. In this moment, you might say Galilee is beginning to become Galilee of the Gentiles again. Better yet, Galilee of everyone, because Jesus is there. And I want to tell you this, Israel is a typology too, a pattern, a type of humanity. It's a picture. They are us, and we are them. And when we read 
Uh, when we read stories like this, when we hear the gospel uh, in this way, we need to be mindful that there is not an us and them. We don't, should never look at them with a level of scrutiny the way we, we might otherwise do. We should see ourselves in them, and that's an important exercise. Jesus is going to have to die at their hands, not at a cliff, but on a cross, and rise again for their sakes to change their hearts and minds. It's not going to happen in their synagogue. Not that day, not later. He knows this. He knows that the spirit that is upon him will have to fall on them too. He knows that the spirit that is upon him to proclaim it will have to fall on them too for them to receive it. For them to fully embrace what is otherwise impossible to accept. This is a hard moment in Nazareth. But it's not the final word. His response cuts to the bone, but it's not abuse. It's surgery. It reveals yet again what God must do for stiff necks and for hard hearts like yours and mine that cling to a narrative unworthy of us, unworthy of the God who loves us. That narrative might be a really old one like theirs, nearsighted, flawed, one that everybody believes and finds hope in, but will be proved to be less than helpful or hopeful. So here's the question for us. Do you see yourself in Nazareth at all? What does Jesus maybe become in your mind, in your heart? Do you see Nazareth in you? Like them, we're content with a certain familiar reality we can curate and even control. I, that's the way I am. Maybe it's true of you. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's social, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's all three at once. It's easy to just live in our own Nazareths populated by like-mindedness, though short-sightedness, where our collective imagination is limited by our own experiences, our own sensibilities, our own cultural constructs, or our own generational values. We're locked in, wagon circled, we think we know a version of the story that is right and good and acceptable to us, but it might not be the reality Jesus is bringing. It's age old. And friends, this is what Jesus is always willing to interrupt. Because the song is better than the version we've been singing. We find ourselves singing very often. I often come back to those three questions that can help us confront our self-protection. And I think self-protection is at the core of what shapes our reality and keeps us from real blessing. Remember what, excuse me, in Nazareth they're protecting an idea of their own national hopes. Here are the questions about self-protection. What am I afraid of losing? What were they afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide? And what am I trying to prove? And to whom? Those are good questions to ask ourselves when we start locating ourselves and living and identifying completely in a narrative that is not worthy of the gospel. We can get really narrowly focused in our Nazareth making, especially when we begin to feel small, we feel insecure, insignificant, or threatened. We may not think that's what's going on, but very often that is what's going on. The Nazareth of Luke 4 was actually under the boot of Rome again. But as far as Jesus was concerned, this was not the problem. Now in our day, we might think that was the problem. We might have said, Jesus, that's the problem. 
As far as he was concerned, it wasn't. Not ultimately. The Jubilee had arrived in him. Nazareth had come to identify solely as the oppressed and Rome as the oppressor. As far as Jesus was concerned, they weren't living in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was living in them. And he was there to free them of thinking and living on those terms. If they would hear him. Nazareth had possibly come to so closely identify with their victimhood that they couldn't see their freedom when it was staring them in the face. Maybe they didn't want to. They certainly didn't want to imagine their cultural and political enemies hearing the song and being invited in to Jubilee by grace. They were holding out for the vengeance part, what they thought was the better part. And I wonder if that's true of us. This means Christians can't functionally reduce the gospel to mere social and political action. Let me just get real, can we, for a minute? We can't just reduce it to fighting human systems of injustice and harm and, and all of that. Whatever side of the aisle you're coming from, however hard you're working and for what. The gospel has to be more than this, though it's certainly not less. The work of bringing justice and healing is also about freeing people from the spiritual and psychological prison of fear and victimhood and from, this is important, the oppositional narratives of even our day that stir up strife and distrust and you know what? They will ultimately end in violence. This path is clearly what Jesus was trying to dissuade his people from pursuing. Repent or perish. That wasn't about heaven or hell one day far away. That was about the world they were making or potentially making. He was offering them a better kingdom, an unshakable one, come what may. And I wonder if that's the one we believe in. It's hard to sometimes, isn't it? We often wonder how it is that the world can have so much abuse, so much trauma, so much suffering, and rightly so. We wonder how God can allow it to continue to shape our common life and to threaten to, to shrink us down to our pain. And I'll tell you this, the answer is not simple, but the answer is clear. The same God came into the world we've distorted to suffer, to suffer the abuse, to suffer the trauma of virtually everything his hometown or a religion or a government could do to him. And after slow and hideous descent into the hell of virtual annihilation of his whole being, of his body, of his future, of his glory, he rose from the ashes. And friends, he has invited us to rise with him. To identify with him even in his suffering. To be in union with him and his story. Not to be reduced to our own. To what makes most sense in the Nazareth of our own experience. Does that make sense? I wonder how Jesus looks and sounds in your Nazareth today. Do you believe what he's bringing is better? Despite the discomfort it often entails and the growth that it always requires. Is he disturbing you? Is he disturbing us? And I just want to remind you that this willingness to hear, to accept, this trust, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not calling you to strive, to think, and to be better today. I'm calling you to be willing, to be a new Nazarene, to welcome whatever Jesus is saying to us in. 
And the Holy Spirit must help us in this. Nazareth was not going to believe without the Spirit. The disciples could not believe, even based on the strength of their own eyewitness and their experience, to, to maintain courage and the trust necessary to believe in Jesus at all costs. And through much pain, they needed the Holy Spirit. They were too afraid of the outcome or too married to their own ideas. They needed the Spirit to do in them and for them what God was requiring of them. And that's still true for us. And He will do it. I'll just tie in our Corinthians reading as I close. You might, like most of us, find yourself doing a lot of head scratching about the gifts of the Spirit. But I can, all I can really say about that today is something more thematic than technical. God's Spirit is always making a new people living together in a renewed Nazareth of sorts. With a new receptivity. That He would speak to us and through us, just people, is a sign that God's desire for us and for the world is a gift from Him and through us. The fact that the language and the truth of heaven is imparted to us, just people, reminds us that this message is always bigger than us. Bigger than our narrow views and certainly bigger than our manhandling ways outpouring of gifts from the Spirit on the church means that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us to proclaim the good news. And His Spirit helps us together to rewrite the story of Nazareth in every generation. That's what we're doing. The Lord being our helper. Do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. Lord, You have come and You keep coming to us. We pray that we would receive you and holy spirit we ask that you would help us to do that we are so often stiff-necked and hard-hearted but we ask that you would come and speak speak to us speak through us and help us to be the church you've called us to be a renewed humanity to receive everything you have for us nothing less in your name we pray amen